Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, good morning, Calvary. Welcome, welcome. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and make our way down to verse 24. Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 24 where we read, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Lord, today as we open your word, we ask you to open our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see your truth as it really is. We ask for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate these verses to us, help us to put them into our hearts, and then put them into action. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2011, what if you were allowed to have your dream job? What would that job be? What would you choose? What would you land on? You might recall last year one of the tourism boards in Australia advertised what they called the best job in the world. It was to be a caretaker on a tropical island off the coast of Australia, paid $110,000 a year. Your only responsibility was to blog once a week about the experience and dive and fish and chill the rest of the time. They had 70,000 applicants. And that's understandable, is it not? And That's a dream job. In fact, at careers.com, they had a list of of ten top jobs that people dream about. Some people really don't think that high. One guy wanted to be a jockey. If you have an opportunity to have your dream job, you want to shoot a little bit higher than that, like maybe the king of England or something like that. But did you know that it wasn't that long ago that a man who held that position gave it up for love? It's true. In 1936, King Edward VIII shocked the world and stunned the British Empire by abdicating the throne because he wanted to marry a woman who was an American not considered worthy of becoming royalty. And so, after only 326 days as the King of England, he went on the radio and gave up the throne by saying, I cannot carry the heavy burden of responsibility as king without the woman that I love. And back in that day, Britain was a superpower. The sun never sat, they said, on the British Empire. So it rocked the world. Well, really, that leads us to our text today. Because in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And this may be the singular largest forfeiture voluntarily of power in history. 
Because we have to drill down and see that this son of Pharaoh's daughter is not just an observation, it's a title. Moses was being groomed for the throne of Egypt. And as he came of age, he refused that opportunity. He abdicated the monarchy of a world-governing empire of Egypt. Amazing. Uh, We don't know if Moses gave an address or how he communicated this plan to his peers in the palace, but we know it shook the world. We know that perhaps Pharaoh, who was aging and preparing uh, to go off to his reward, uh, chased after Moses and uh, didn't take well, take kindly to Moses' refusal to become the Pharaoh. Nonetheless, uh, this was something he was being prepared for. It was, I think, a dream job. And we have to imagine that as Moses came of age, he was looking forward to it. The prestige, the privilege, the, the, the power that comes with being a, a pharaoh. I mean, you can't watch the History Channel for one week without seeing some special about the, uh, the amazing archaeology of Egypt. Just a few weeks ago, I was at the, the King Tut exhibition up in Denver. And King Tut was a relatively minor king, as a matter of fact, but they have some of the best preserved funeral items from his tomb they discovered. It's amazing, the chariots, the funeral masks, the the golden scepters, and just seeing the the slippers that this this pharaoh wore. And, And Moses had all of that and so much more. Unimaginable wealth on the material plane. But Moses refused the best the world had to offer that he might have the best that God wanted for him. He gave up the material, turned his back on it, because he saw the invisible and could do the impossible. The key, really, that turns the lock of our passage today is down in verse 27. Look at it with me, the end of that passage, where it says, because he saw him who is invisible. Let that resonate with you for just a moment. And consider, do you live like you see the invisible? Or do you operate purely on the physical plane? As you analyze 2010, are you just counting up the acorns you've accumulated? Are you just considering the experiences you've had? Is it all about what you've done and what you've stored up? Or do you live as if you see the invisible. That's the only way to lead the Christian life, as if we see the invisible. Moses did that. And just to emphasize the fact of what he he turned his back on, Acts 7.22 says about Moses, Moses, listen, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Can you imagine that? He understood these mysteries that archaeologists now ponder, how they put up these pyramids, how they they built these magnificent temples without the benefit of mechanical devices. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. He was an executive. He had been groomed. He was prepared to take the mantle of authority of the Egyptian monarchy. And he walked away. Now, he wasn't forced out. He walked out. And they were offended by it. The Egyptians were an amazing civilization. We only see a glimmer today. Moses saw it all, had it all, and turned his back on it. So he saw the invisible. That reminds us, the New Testament says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them 
because they are spiritually understood. Can you remember a time before you were a Christian and you picked up a Bible, just kind of went through it and it's like, wow, this is just weird. Just old stories. Or you'd hear something on, on the radio or TV and it just, it just didn't, it bounced off your heart and your head. It's because these things are spiritually discerned. We require the Holy Spirit to translate them from the natural to the supernatural. That's what Moses did. You have to see the invisible to do the impossible. Well, he did that. And by faith he saw it. That was the cause. Now we look for the effects. We track down through verses 24 and following and see how seeing the invisible impacted Moses' life. Verse 24, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he refused his splendor on the Nile. He wouldn't live literally on the pinnacle of the pyramid. He, he walked away. And you have to consider that, uh, that Moses was thinking in his mind he was being prepared for this. That was his dream. We have to imagine that. And, and his dream had to perish. That God's dream might resurrect. And life can be disillusioning, can it not? Maybe in 2010, you had some dreams go away. Maybe you had some financial plans. Maybe you had a business that endured severe physical hardships. Maybe you had a relationship evaporate you were counting on. Maybe back in 2009, you looked forward to the past year and thought things would happen that didn't come to pass. Maybe they collapsed on you. And you're sitting here today a little bit in shock, a little bit stunned by what God has allowed to happen to you. Would you entertain the notion that perhaps what you think is the worst thing that could happen to you could turn out to be the best thing? The scripture that says all things work together for those who love God and who called and are called according to his purposes is fully engaged and in effect for your life. So we're on the brink of a new year. These next six days could be some of the most significant for you. You know, Napoleon said there's a, in any battle, there's a, a 10 or 15 minute window of war upon which the hinges of, of the battle turn. And very often it's the strategy. It's the casting of a vision. It's, it's the, the idea that the hopes and the leadership present to the troops that are that window of opportunity. And these days between Christmas and New Year's could be just that for you. You could anticipate that God is willing to take your life wherever you may find it today and do magnificent things with it if you're just willing to cooperate. Moses did that, but we do see our hopes go down in flames and ashes. That's how life is. Now, children aren't born that way. They're fantastic. They believe anything. My little grandson, Jackson, if I tell him I'm a pirate, let's walk the plank. He's ready to go. They'll believe almost anything. and They have this wonderful innocence about them. But life really is kind of a progressive reality check from childlike fantasy to the ultimate realities. I'll never forget when I first started dawning on me some of these things in life. I was, I was a little bit late picking up on the fact that TV commercials weren't for my benefit. They're trying to sell me stuff. When I realized those creepy little leprechauns and their magically delicious cereal weren't really there for my benefit, it really irritated me. And I began to realize, all you mean all those things are just trying to sell me stuff? Tony the Tiger? And, and that's how life is, this gradual splash of the cold waters of reality of what's it all about. So we have hopes for relationships. We have hopes for our accomplishments. We have hopes for our finances. And they often don't come to pass. Reality doesn't match up. And that's on the micro level. 
Same thing is true of the whole human race. The whole human race has hopes, world peace, living together in prosperity. It used to be the exploration of the new world, the new frontiers coming to the new world. Then the Industrial Revolution brought hope and promise of labor-saving devices. We would live a life of luxury. And then the technological revolution of the, the World's Fair Expo of the 50s of bringing us to a life of leisure. We'd all have a rocket pack and a dog named Astro. And so the 60s then dawned, and we saw utopia, the hippies. What was the watchword? Peace and love. It was misguided, but it was the attempt to find paradise on earth. You know, there's, there's not much talk about world peace anymore. There's not talk about us all living together and, and just having health and wealth and prosperity. The 60s were a time of, of love. We live in a time of terror. We aren't talking about prosperity and peace. We're talking about survival now, getting by, not incinerating the planet, not perishing in homelessness. The hopes have changed. Our expectations have been lowered. Our dreams have been dashed. That's not from God's standpoint. When our dreams begin to die, God's dreams can begin to live. This is the principle in Scripture. Look at Abraham and Isaac. His hope was in his son. And the son had to die metaphorically. The same is true of Joseph. The same is true ultimately of Jesus. So often you see in Scripture a vision, death of a vision, and then the resurrection out of the ashes of that vision. That can be true for us as well. God loves a comeback. God loves to come to our rescue. He loves to show himself strong in our behalf. And the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro across the face of the earth today and around this room, looking for someone to be strong in behalf of. And we need to live lives that are worthy of the magnificent God that we serve. And so there's not a lot of talk about medical or scientific utopia anymore. In fact, the generation, the current younger generation, may be the first in American history with less expectations than the previous generation. They don't automatically now assume they will live longer, live better, or lead the world to peace and prosperity. They just want to get by. And that's not the world we want to lead to the next generation of Christians. But we see that Moses left unimaginable wealth because he saw the invisible. God allows our dreams to end so his dreams can sometimes begin. Verse 25, we see the sequence now. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the the passing pleasures of sin. And he was able to make this godly decision. And it's an odd decision. It's a strange choice. I'm going to be leaving the palace, going to the desert to leave millions of obstinate Jewish slaves. What a great plan. But it's a strange choice, but it was God's choice. And Moses did it. He was able to make this godly decision for the reason he was operating on a different value system than the world. He had a grid that he ran his decisions through that took into account the invisible, the promises of the mighty Jehovah God. And so watch his economy in action in verse 26 esteeming or valuing, prioritizing would be another way to say, valuing the reproach of Christ, read it with me, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward, the invisible but inevitable reward. 
And so he led him to action. He forsook. In verse 27 it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. And so he turned his back, and we see here the the crucial, pivotal principle. Faith without works is dead. Faith will always lead you to action. Moses just didn't know he did. He transferred what he knew to how he lived, and that's crucial. As we proceed through the message, we're going to find significant challenges to some assumptions about normal Christianity in our culture today. I don't want them to bring a burden. I don't want them to bring guilt. I want it to be saturated in grace. But faith without works is dead. And there is a burden of the Lord. Jesus said it was light, but he didn't deny the fact there is a burden, the burden of the Lord. He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now, our cross in no way compares with his cross. What we have to die to is nothing in relationship to what he he carried, the bulk of the weight of the cross. And yet, we are obligated to carry the burden of the Lord if we expect to see his reward. Faith without works is dead. Moses' faith translated into action. He did not fear, and then he endured. There was suffering incumbent upon Moses as a function of his decision. And so as we pick up our cross, if we see the invisible, we can live the impossible. Do you know that God has a dream for you? He thinks about you, the Bible says, more than the sands in the sea. He has hopes for you, just as you have hopes for your children. And many of you are raising children, doing your best best to form them and mold them and guide them and maneuver them without dominating them into a godly life. And I have a daughter I'm trying to prepare for college, as many of you do have children. And I realize as I pray about this that it's not my responsibility to give her a career. My responsibility is to guide her into her calling. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. If you find your calling, your career will follow like so many dominoes. And our responsibility individually is to find our calling, find our place in line, find our place where our unique gift set will fit, and then use it fully as we express it to the glory of God. God has a dream for you. Let me outline it this way. It's very quick and very simple. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be spirit-filled. He wants you serving. And he wants you to mature to the point of sacrificing, that you're willing to die to self. Saved? You're going to live forever. The worst that can happen, your heart stops and you're in paradise with Jesus. There you go. That's, that is the salvation, assurance, and confidence we have as a, as a result of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. Spirit-filled, you cannot live the Christian life unless you are being refilled, renewed by the Holy Spirit. You'll come across obstacles of the flesh, the world, etc. that cannot be overcome without the power of God's Holy Spirit. You must rely on it. We see in verse 29, the Egyptians couldn't go through. They are a symbol of the flesh. They couldn't follow. They couldn't live the miraculous. They, They couldn't walk with God. They were drowned. The same will happen with your flesh if you try to pursue spiritual goals in the power of your own mind, the power of your own will. You have to be filled by the Spirit to see the invisible, to unlock the Scriptures, and put it into regular, consistent action in your life as a rule and not an exception. So that will lead you to service. That's the, the, the faith with works is alive. 
translating what we know into what we do every day. We should be serving God in a very regular capacity. This is not a spectator faith that we have. Jesus anticipates we'll be fully engaged in kingdom business, about the Father's business. That's what gives us life, meaning, and purpose. Service will lead you inevitably to conflict. We call them trials. Really, it's a collision of your plans and God's will. God has something higher, better, different. It collides with what you have in mind. We call it a trial. And then you have to die to self, let your dream perish, that his might live and be fulfilled. That is the point and the purpose of the Christian life. We so often miss that point. And we, we see it through a glass darkly. We see it through a flawed humanity. We see it through relationships and churches and people who uh, are, are cracked and have feet of clay. And we miss the point. Reminds me of a story I heard in the radio from a friend this week about a, a talking dog in Tennessee. And he, the guy was driving down on the back road, and he sees a sign. It says, talking dog for sale, $10. He goes, this I got to see. Well, he pulls up. Sure enough, in the yard, he has a dog, black dog, tied up for sale, $10. He walks over to it. Are you a talking dog? dog goes, yeah, what of it? goes, oh, tell me your story. Going, well, I found this gift as a young puppy. And the government finds out about it, of course. The CIA got a hold of me and gave me as a gift to the Russian embassy in Washington. And I spent 10 years in the corner listening to secrets and telling my handler. And I got tired. I wanted to settle down, have puppies, and they, they retired me here to this farm in Tennessee. Now this guy wants to sell me. The owner comes out, and the guy says, why would you want to sell this amazing dog? He goes, oh, that dog is such a liar. He never worked for the CIA. <laughs> and so we missed the point. We're given a great gift and it doesn't come quite in the right package as we anticipate, and we forfeit it. And I, I've observed in the church that that is true as, as well, at least in our recent history, because... God does want us to have the power, the charisma, the gifts of his Holy Spirit. And if you will, there's been a, a charismaniac revival that is often typified on television. And we see that and we go, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to be like that. And we pull back from the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We see some wacko speaking in tongues on television. So we're reluctant to ask for to exercise that gift in our private prayer language. And that's the lightning of God, the power of His Holy Spirit. We need to recapture that territory we have conceded to the extremists and the abuses and excesses of the weirdos. And God wants us to have the lightning of His Holy Spirit. Now, right here is the doctrine. That's not going anywhere. It's firm, it's solid, it's rock hard, it's Non-negotiable. We know that. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit on one hand, and then over here, the promises of God. That's where there's more power, more resources, and yet the health and wealth doctrine blew through the church over the past decade. People jerking truth out of context, the name it and claim it group. And so we, again, are reluctant. We abandon the power of standing on God's promises. If you will of demanding that God's word is true. Now, no ordinary pedestrian reading of scripture would ever lead you to that health and wealth nonsense that's being taught, that whatever you say will be brought into reality and God is obligated to serve your words. But I'll tell you this, 
There are some fantastic principles in Scripture that God wants to see come to life in your existence on earth. And they are there for the asking. In context, yes. In balance, yes. But we take it in faith. That's the thunder. So we we have the solid rock. We have the lightning of the Holy Spirit. We have the perfect storm of, of God's promises. We are an unstoppable dynamic at that point. And that, that is what makes us a solid Christian movement. That's what you see in the New Testament, the book of Acts. People founded in the word of God, filled by the Holy Spirit, expecting God to fulfill his word. And then, then wonderful things begin to happen. Well, then we also have the issue of, of, of giving up on, on the power of giving. And we see so many excesses about the giving and merchandising of God's flock. I'm almost afraid to preach about giving. And we see us pulling back from telling God's people that Malachi says God challenges us to give that he might open the windows of heaven, that we might have access to resources to fulfill the Great Commission. The Bible says that. See if I won't open up those windows, God says. We have so many people pilfering the people of God today that we we are reluctant to teach that great truth. We, We ought not be. You know, perhaps... Um, if you do these things, if you fill yourself continually with the Holy Spirit by asking in faith, you stand on God's promises, you give generously, hilariously. You may not see a national revival, but I guarantee you'll see a personal one. Maybe it's time that we wake up from the American dream and inherit God's dream for ourselves in the church. It was 1931 when James Adams defined the American dream first one who brought it into public conversation. He said, the American dream is that we can accomplish anything with imagination, ingenuity, and hard work. It's proven to be accurate. We we see the prosperity around us today as no other civilization has ever seen. But what if, what if we applied that principle not to business only, not to our own personal life, but to the business of the kingdom of God? Ingenuity. Imagination hard work. What couldn't we accomplish? Let's imagine that today was the first day of your walk with the Lord. And for all intents and purposes, it might as well be. What's past is only instruction. What's future is only promise. What you have is today. And the decisions you make about the future, you're casting cement into forms today about 2011. These can be very vital days between now and the new year. As you seek God, you pray, perhaps you fast and show God you're serious about serving him with all of your heart. And you're looking for a radical Christianity, abandoning yourself to the adventures God may have for you. We need, first of all, to get a grip. Where are we now in church history? Analyze the situation. Jesus said, the fields are ripe to harvest. They are white. They are ready to be harvested. Pray God will send laborers into the harvest. Perhaps some of you will be called in the coming year to go into the harvest in a more meaningful, full-time manner. Immediately something kicks in in our minds that goes, great idea, not me and not now. God may have other ideas for you, as he did for Moses. Listen, 6.7 billion people on earth, 2.7 billion of them unreached with the gospel. There are 1,600 distinct people groups on earth. 40% of them are unreached with the gospel. That is unacceptable. It's intolerable for a church with the resources, 
the discretionary income, the manpower, and the message we have, are we really going to go off our watch and go into heaven and report we left 40% of the planet unreached? It can't be so. It doesn't need to be so. We, we have the ability, we have to take the Great Commission and fulfill it, the opportunity to do so as never before. Do you know there are 600 churches in America for every unreached people group on earth? If we dedicated ourselves to reaching them, we'd be fighting over pagans. That's a church split I'd like to see. I'd be fighting over, no, I'm going, no, I'm going. That's the attitude we should be having. Jesus said we are a church that has an open door before us. But we have a little strength. So he's placed an open door. That's true. Perhaps the reason we have little strength is that we waste so much time and energy planting and planting crops of wood and hay and stubble that will not have any permanent significance. Nonetheless, we have an open door. So we analyze the situation, fields are ripe. We assess our resources. Listen, 70 million baby boomers came out of World War II. We all know since the Korean War they have dominated the American marketing landscape. They are now giving way to something called the millennials. And get this, 83 million millennials born between 1978 and 1996 in America. It's a huge new bubble of population demographically moving through uh, the body politic here in America. Well, what if instead of retiring, the baby boomers were re-energized to become mentors? I understand seasons of life, changes, but what if instead of going off into the horizon, riding off uh, into the sunset, we gave ourselves to investing and pouring into young people, taking our wisdom, experience, and expertise and helping the young people be prepared for what lies ahead for them in terms of the Great Commission? What if we had second careers on the mission field instead of the golf course? What if this could really get exciting? What if, what if generation, and we also call them generation whatever, gets it? What if they, like Moses, turn their back on Egypt, Xboxes, malls, and wasting their time and pour the energy they have at 18 to 24 years of age into the gospel? What if? That could be explosive. And there's a wild card here, I think. You'll you'll hear sometimes church experts mourning about the fact that 70% of our youth groups, when they leave leave high school and go to college, don't return to church. These are prodigals. You might know one. You might be one this morning. Well, instead of mourning them, I think we need a strategy to reach them. And Jesus said, you'll be fishers of men. Now, when you go fishing, do you stand on the banks of the the, uh, lake and go, here, fishes, jump onto the shore. And by by the way, on your way to the frying pan, would you mind cleaning yourself? That's what we do at the church very often. Come, come sinners, come to our corner. We're very comfortable here. Please come here. Come fish. Jump in our boat. No. Jesus had cast out in the deep. Go deep, go long, go hard. It's dangerous out there. There's storms out there. But that's where the fish are. We need tactics to reach these prodigals. They are out there. And by the way, what did they take with them when they left? Many of them were raised by parents like you, who from the the womb to the campus, you did everything possible to expose them to truth. You anchored them. They were at youth group. They were at retreats. They went to conferences. They had the exposure of Christian music. Hey, don't underestimate the power of veggie tales. 
I mean, these children have the Word of God planted in their heart. It's a ticking time bomb. It is. And and God can ignite that, and we could see a wave of renewal in, in these prodigal generations that have left the church granted, but they took with them the fact that the Word of God does not come back void. It's planted deep in their heart, and it can be reignited. And so I am a optimistic about the church. I see a generation of young leaders coming up who get it. They're passionate, they're powerful, they're pushed. Now they're they're anchored in the truth right here, but that every border they're pushing it. Technologically, location, geographically, style. They're zealous. Now, once in a while they say things that maybe Charles Spurgeon might frown on. I'm good with that because they're anchored in the truth and they're on fire for Jesus. And I see them coming up all over the country. Great things are happening. Next week, 20,000 Christian leaders will gather in Atlanta for passion. I stood in the outfield of Angel Stadium and seen people coming forward from foul pole to foul pole, filling the outfield at a crusade. It's happened for 20 years in a row. Listen, the church of God is advancing like never before. God's church is on the move. You don't want to miss this. Oh, I know we hear 3,000 churches in America close every year. May I say to you, some of them should. They don't preach the gospel. They have aberrant doctrine. They're dead. I don't know all the situations, but I, I know that God's church is not closing. It's moving forward. We want to be part of that. He has great plans. If I can shift my analogies from fish to sheep, we should be building bigger barns, planning for God to do greater things, expecting his word to come true. That he said, if we follow him, he'll bring in that harvest. That should be our strategy as we fish for men. Well, we need to get a grip where we're at. We need a global vision. Jesus didn't die just for Americans. He died for all 6.7 billion people on the earth. And um, there's a lot of talk about the economy in America. I understand the hardships many have been under. But you have to put that in context of how the rest of the world lives and what the world looks like from God's standpoint. And I would say the economy of heaven is much different than the economy in America. Part of the problem is we've been living in an unsustainable bubble of prosperity that has now burst under the weight of our own debt. And we're reaping the effects of extravagant living. That's just an economic fact. Getting a grip is part of getting a global vision for the world as it is today, becoming part of God's whole plan, dying to the American dream, living to the dream of God for the whole world. In athletics, there's a principle called your personal best record. You push to do better, go faster, do more than you've ever done before. That's what I challenge you to do in 2011, to push your spiritual best record to challenge yourself. And you're not being compared with others. Jesus said, what is that to thee? You follow me. You're not even being compared with your past. You may have been loafing it. We can just get by. We know we often sink to the lowest common denominator. Just kind of go the easy route. God wants you to push the edges hard, to go deep, to go long. And the only accurate measurement of your performance and obedience as a Christian is this. What's possible for you with the resources of God in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? That's the accurate yardstick. What's possible? What, could, what is your potential as a Christian? Not being all you can be, 
being all Jesus can be through you. That's what you should be pressing for in 2011. Not accepting mediocrity. Not settling for second best. Wanting to give everything you have for Jesus Christ. It's not based on what others do. You know, it's interesting. If you put on a parallel track Moses and Joseph, they were going in completely opposite directions. Joseph went from the prison to the pinnacle in Egypt, obediently. Moses went from being a prince of Egypt to being a slave, a Hebrew slave. Neither of them had the same path. Both of them were completely obedient to the things of God. So it has nothing to do with position or placement. It's all about your obedience. That you individually and uniquely follow and find the call of God that you might have is best. So... Here's a dream buster that I've been guilty of, I have to tell you, a divine dream buster. I think I can do both. I think I I can multitask enough that I can have it in the world and still serve the Lord full on. And the Lord had to pull me up short on that and say, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. There's not enough bandwidth to do both. It'd be nice if if there were, if we didn't have to sleep or something. But it doesn't work out that way. You have to pick your passion. You have to choose your master. Either you'll be mastered by materialism or you'll be mastered by the Messiah. Now, get, we have to get a grip, get a, a global vision, then we have to get going. Let's get going. We have the mission. It's very clear, the Great Commission. We have the methods. We have the clear principles of Scripture. And we have the manpower. 70 million baby boomers, 80 million millennials, unstoppable. Notice, again, that if you have seen dreams end in 2010, just maybe that's a good thing. We need to start praying prayers that are commiserate with the size of our God. Go beyond parking spot prayers in the malls and expect to do things that unless God intervenes, you are sure to fail. Do you have things like that in your plans for 2011? Are you looking at things that unless God comes through for you, it's going to fall apart? If you don't, you're going in your own strength. If you're sure of what you can accomplish, if you're living the comfortable Christian life, you're not giving God the opportunity to be who he wants to be. He's waiting for us to honor him with prayers equal to his power and his promises. And so, for the Christian... The ultimate enemy is not death anymore. It's a wasted life. That should be our fear. Death doesn't haunt us, doesn't scare us. We're guaranteed of eternal life. Jesus said, don't consume yourself with food and clothing. The pagans do that. You pursue the kingdom of God. You have a holy calling. You see the invisible. Well, I can close with a quote from an author named David Platt. He said, I believe God has a dream for people today. It's just not the same as the American dream. Can Christians pursue excess in a world where 26,000 children die every day of starvation or preventable diseases, where billions live in grinding poverty, a world where more than a billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus? I believe God is saying to us, he writes, that real success is found in radical sacrifice. That joy is found in generosity, not materialism. And that Jesus is a reward worth risking everything for.
couple quick parting shots. Do you take the Great Commission personally or do you leave it to the professionals? Are you willing in 2011 to break out of your routine that you settled down into? Well, they can be deadly. And then, is there a sacred area of your life you refuse to give up to Jesus? Perhaps it's time, a luxury, a hobby, a pursuit, secret passion. Are you willing to put it to death at the foot of the cross that you might be resurrected into life you can't even perhaps imagine this morning? Three suggestions. I'm practical. Do something real. Put feet to your faith. Try something big that demands God's intervention and do it now. Avoid the not me, not now syndrome. We all have dreams. Pivotal question is this. Are your dreams man-made or God-given? Are you going to demand your dream or allow his to come to life for you? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for us here today. I pray we would grasp the great dreams and hopes and plans you have for your children. That begins with salvation at the foot of the cross. I pray, Lord, that anybody here today or listening to this would accept what Jesus did as payment for their sins. And then beyond that, Lord, they would enter into the spirit-filled life of serving you and sacrificing as you have called all your children to do. If there are prodigals today, Lord, who have come just cynically listening, wondering if the truth they learned as a child might still be true, I pray you give them a resounding yes. Like that father, you run to meet them, you greet them and give them the best robe and celebrate their return to your family. And then, Lord, I pray for those here today who are being called into a more serious pursuit of you, who have walked with you for some time, Lord, and now being required of a more diligent passion for serving you in these final days. That's unique. It's individual. In the quiet counsel of their heart, I pray you'd speak to them in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.